Amen. Well, it was a good, good tea, and uh, good to be together again. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand, open our hearts, open our minds and our understanding, anoint the lips of the speaker and the ears of the hearer alike. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so once we get saved, the Spirit of God comes and dwells within us. And we have many, many scriptures to that effect, in Romans particularly. Um, and where we left off earlier, I want to just pick up on, on that and just clarify a, a point um, which is somewhat controversial. We traditionally in Pentecostal circles have believed that when you get saved, nothing much happens except you get saved. There's no sense in which God's Spirit dwells in you. And that the first time anything happens in terms of the Spirit is that when you get filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. And as we said before the break, in fact, and, and of course the, 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 the uh, cessationists, those who don't believe in the baptism and the gifts of the Spirit, uh, would say, well, um, point to the many scriptures that speak about the fact that when we are saved, uh, we have the Holy Spirit. I'm going to look at one or two of those scriptures in a moment. Um, and so if I then have the Holy Spirit at that point, then there is no need for a second experience. Um, well, both of those views are wrong. Um, because clearly, or, or, or let me say both of them are right, but they both are half right. Both contain some of the truth. And I'm not trying to compromise to bring two things together, but this is my sincere conviction, having looked at the Scriptures, that when we, are, when we get saved, that God's Spirit comes and dwells within us. Um, because without that, there is no understanding of spiritual things, uh, there is no uh, contact with God, as it were, um, and, and the, the idea of saying that, well, it's Jesus who comes and lives in us, and then when we get filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes. I, I don't see that as, as scriptural. Um, you know, and it's obviously based on the, uh, on the childlike idea of asking Jesus into your heart which really doesn't have a lot of biblical foundation anyhow. Um, and so, uh, because it's, it's based on John, which says, as many as received him. Now, receiving him is not just asking Jesus into your life. It's accepting him with all his claims and everything that he is. Uh, it's more than just asking him into my life. It's receiving his authority. It's receiving the work of salvation and of atonement that he has done. It's receiving him as my Lord and as my master. All of those things are part of the idea of receiving him. And so when we get saved then, the, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. But there is clearly a second experience, uh, which I believe is the baptism or the uh, filling of the Holy Spirit. And you can see this in a number of places, and I'll explain the theology behind that in, in a moment. But you, you can see, clearly see that Jesus, um, from, the, from his womb, from his mother's womb, he had the Spirit of God. He was uh, unique in that sense. And yet, at the, his baptism, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and empowers him for the ministry. And his ministry then begins, and he doesn't perform any miracles before that. Um, and uh, contrary to the Catholic doctrine that he made pigeons out of clay and blew on them and they flew away. 
that's in the Apocrypha. There is no, it's, not, it's not a scriptural idea. So Jesus performs, even though he has the Spirit of God at the beginning, uh, he, the Holy Spirit comes upon him in a different mode or a different way for a different purpose. Uh, the same idea is the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. When the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, does that mean the Holy Spirit wasn't here before? No, he always was. He was here from the very beginning. You remember that Genesis 1 tells us that the Spirit of God moved over the, uh, over the waters. And so the Holy Spirit was on the earth in the Old Testament. But he comes in a different way or a different mode at the day of Pentecost for a different purpose. So from that you can see then that the, um, the Holy Spirit is not, uh, is not, is not uh, he, he doesn't just work in one way. He worked in a different way in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, the Holy Spirit would come upon people. In the New Testament, He doesn't come upon us anymore. So those people who say, well, the Holy Spirit came on me and made me do stupid things, uh, that's not a biblical idea. Uh, that is an Old Testament idea. The Holy Spirit doesn't work that way anymore. The Holy Spirit now comes and dwells within us and empowers us from within. And so empowering us from within, uh, uh, Paul then in Corinthians says that the, the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. So in the Old Testament, they were speaking uh, or acting, uh, we say, ecstatically. So they were under the control of the Holy Spirit and had no control over what they did or said. In the New Testament, clearly, we have control. Because in, in the church of Corinth, people were bringing third and fourth and fifth and sixth prophecies or the tongues and interpretation. And Paul says no two or three at the most because the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. So in the New Testament, I can no longer claim the Holy Spirit made me do something because the Holy Spirit is not coming upon me as he did in the Old Testament. So what I'm, to the point I'm simply making is that, is that the Holy Spirit works in different ways at different times. And even at the end of time, um, and uh, personally I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, you may believe differently and that's fine, but uh, at that point I believe that the Holy Spirit is taken with the church. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, that he who restrains does so until he is taken out of the way. But after the Holy Spirit has taken together with the church, people still get saved. 144,000 Jews get saved and a multitude of others get saved. Does that, so when the Holy Spirit is withdrawn, does it mean that He is no longer on the earth and no longer convicting of sin of righteousness and of judgment? No, clearly He still is. But He is not working in the way that He has chosen to work for the church age where He is primarily working through the church. Uh, so after the rapture of the church, He will work, uh, still will be working, but not through the church in a slightly different way much more like it was in the, in the Old Testament. Now, now, all of that I've said, it's simply to highlight that I don't want us to get confused because all I'm dealing with this evening is conversion, the point when I get saved, and from there on, I'm not dealing with the baptism or the uh, filling uh, of the Holy Spirit as such. Uh, that's, a, that's a totally different subject. So, if we go back then to, um, let's see, uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. Now we're going to spend a, long, a lot of time in Romans 8 uh, on Wednesday. So I, I don't want to get too much into this chapter, but I do want to highlight this, this verse. 
Verse, let, let's take it from verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So he's speaking about our salvation. And he says we received the spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, the reason I point to verse 16 is that you see, uh, and this is where it gets a little bit complicated and a little bit messy. The Spirit witnesses with my spirit. Sorry, the red's not working so, so well. So the Holy Spirit is witnessing with my spirit. Elsewhere Paul says, if we don't have the Spirit, we are none of His. So we have the Holy Spirit when we are saved. Now the, the complication is, and this is where it's a little uh, complex. So inside of me then I have my Spirit, which is now alive, but I also have the Holy Spirit. And so somebody said to me last night, I'm not sure if he's here, but said, well, then we have four parts. So we have body, soul, my spirit, and God's spirit. Well, I, I'm not too comfortable with the idea of four. Um, and in fact, the next verse I want to show you is, um, is in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17. One Corinthians six seventeen. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Now, we, we don't have a lot of information on this. But clearly what that verse is saying is that my spirit and the Lord's spirit are united. They are really one spirit. I don't think that there's a sense, and I cannot find anywhere in the New Testament, and as we, as we go through these, uh, the application of this um, in, in, uh, tonight and Wednesday, um, I, I don't find anywhere where there is my spirit in operation and the Holy Spirit in operation. Uh, these, these two are not contrary in any way. They are really, uh, if they are not the same, they are totally in harmony with one another. Um, I don't have a, you know, we, we speak about people, he has a bad spirit. Well, that's not good language. We really mean he has a bad attitude. doesn't mean he has a demon spirit or as a Christian his spirit is not a good spirit. Um, that, that's, you know, we're, we're, we're very imprecise with our language sometimes. So when we say someone has a bad spirit, we should really use the word bad attitude because it has nothing to do... So, so there, there's no sense in which I can see anywhere in the New Testament that a Christian has a spirit that is in any way contrary to God's spirit. When we get saved or born again, God's spirit marries our spirit. There is really effectively one spirit. Uh, we are one with the Lord. And so there is now that voice of the spirit speaking within me. And that is uh, calling me to do the will of God. So let's see... Um, Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 9 through 11. And uh, one of the brothers uh, mentioned this in the tea time. Uh, 
Uh, sorry, it wasn't that verse that he mentioned. No, it, yeah, it was in fact this section. So we're going to spend a little bit of time in this, uh, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 9. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now, remember what we've been saying. There are the five senses, of which the most important ones are the ear and the eye. So, what Paul is saying is that ear has not heard, eye has not seen. In other words, it has not been perceived with a body. Neither has it entered into the heart of man. You cannot even think of it with a mind. So clearly what he is saying here is, what he, the point that he is coming to is that this is something deeper and greater than the body and deeper and greater than the soul. So eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. Through his spirit. And so there are things that we cannot perceive with our body, we cannot grab hold of with our mind, but it is revealed by the spirit. For the spirit searches all things, Yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now, that gets a little complicated. I'm not going to get into that because it will take us away. But clearly what he is saying is that God's spirit knows the mind of God. Because God's spirit is God. Remember, the Holy Spirit is not separate from God. He is God. And so he knows everything of God. And so when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us, we have this marvelous deposit of God within us. Now obviously we don't have all of God's knowledge and God's wisdom and all of those things, but we have access to them through the Holy Spirit. Now, now just think about the Lord Jesus. When Jesus was 12 years old, uh, he astounded the rabbis with his knowledge. And people say, well, you know, it was because he was God that he knew all those things. Now, I don't want to get into that whole theology, but there's a lot of doctrine behind that. No, he didn't know those things because he was God. He had learnt them. He had learnt them. And how do we know that? Because the next verse says, he increased in wisdom and in stature. So he was growing into these things. He didn't receive a deposit from God and instantly knew everything. But he was growing in those things. But clearly, God's Spirit in him, as he responds to the Spirit of God, God reveals things to him in the same way he does to us. And each one of us has access to the Holy Spirit. And, that, and yet we wonder, why does one Christian grow phenomenally and another Christian just stands in the, in the same place, never growing, never developing, never, uh, as Paul says, ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth? Because one's listening to the Spirit 
and the other one's not listening to the Spirit. Now remember the balance. We, 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 can't, we don't learn outside of the Scriptures. But as God's Spirit works within me and I have access to God's divine knowledge and as God reveals Himself to me through the Scriptures, these things become real. And I, as I respond to that, remember, to him who has, more will be given. To him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And Jesus speaks that in the context of revelation. The question is, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus says, I'm not going to waste my time with them. Jesus say that? No. It's effectively what he said. Because seeing they will not see and hearing they will not hear. So there's pointless speaking to them in anything because they're not going to understand anyway. So I speak to them in parables, he says, but to you it has been given to know. And so they cannot know because they are spiritually dead. Even though they were doctors of theology and uh, the, the, the learned men of Israel, because they spirit, there was no spiritual life within them. And so even when Jesus stood in front of them, with all of his miracles and his wisdom and his knowledge and his fulfillment of the scriptures in his birth and every aspect of his life, they couldn't recognize him for who he was. Because there is a blindness upon their spirit. Now let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 2. And let's go to verse 12. But now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. So the Spirit we have received is not a worldly Spirit, but the Spirit from God. That we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Simple. God has given us the Holy Spirit so that we can know the things of God. So, and remember what, he, he, he doesn't leave us to our own devices to grope after him, as Paul says concerning the, the pagans. We don't have to grope after God, try and grab hold of him. But God has come and dwelt within us and he is revealing himself to us if we would only see him if we would only look. Now, he's got, we're going to come to that point. So, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Now, look what Paul is saying. These things we also speak. So, Paul is speaking so that they can hear but he says, even though we're speaking in the natural, in the flesh, if you will, um, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, so not appealing to the mind, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. So, really what Paul is saying is when we're speaking, there is a confirmation going on in the Spirit. And that's how we learn, that's how we hear. And folk, my prayer every time before I preach, I say, Lord, unless you touch the hearts of the hearers, it's a waste of time. I can entertain you with words and with arguments and with debates, but unless there's the Spirit of God 
speaking and confirming that this is indeed the truth, nothing is going to happen. And so we desperately need God to be working in us and we desperately need to break up the fallow ground so that the Spirit is able to speak to us. But, but here's the problem. The problem is in this realm here and the other senses. We are constantly being bombarded by information. The learned people say over 5,000 messages a day. And I think that that's very conservative. 5,000 messages a day. Buy this. Do this. Go here. Look at that. Think this way. Through the media, through the billboards, through the newspapers, through everything that we see around us. All the time there are these constant messages. And in between there's the still small voice of the Spirit. And unfortunately, most of the time we can hear these things, but we can't hear the Spirit. And we wonder why our lives are spiritually bankrupt. Because we have not attuned ourselves to hear the Spirit. And we expect God to come and hit us on the side of our head and perform some great miracle and then maybe I'm going to hear but remember in the Old Testament, he wasn't in the wind and in the earthquake. He was in that still, small voice. And he still speaks in that still, small voice. Can I hear his voice? Can I recognize the voice of the Spirit? Remember in the Old Testament, when Samuel was, uh, before Samuel was even born, the book of Samuel opens and it says that the word of God was scarce in those days and there was no open vision or open revelation. The word of God was scarce and there was no open revelation. And then Samuel comes and he lives in the temple and God calls him. By the way, just to check that you're still awake, how many times did God call Samuel? Watch it. Four times. Four times. Three times he goes back to Eli. And then God calls the fourth time. And every time he goes to Eli, he says, you called. Eli, who was the high priest and who was supposed to be God's man, could not recognize the voice of God. What a state. The one man who should have recognized God's voice, does not recognize God's voice. And finally he says to Samuel, maybe it's God speaking. Go back and when he calls again, then you respond and you say, here am I. And folk, God is calling. God is speaking. Every time we open his word, every time we come to a meeting, in the still hours of the night, during the day, he's speaking. Am I hearing his voice? Or is my, are my ears and my eyes so filled with the entertainment of this world and the things of the world and the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches and all of these things that keeps my body and my mind occupied so that I cannot hear the Spirit? Excuse me for using another example from the time when I was in the military, but I remember being on 
and uh, Brother John will understand what I'm talking about, being in the operational area in the war zone. And um, there was a, a quiet period, and I had nothing to do as waiting for, for something else to, to happen. And uh, I, I went to, uh, to a, um, a guy who was a radio operator, a wireless operator, and he had a Land Rover. And uh, in the Land Rover in the back was dozens of radios. I mean, literally dozens of radios. And they were tuned to all sorts of frequencies. Some of them were Morse code and some of them were uh, scrambled um, um, secret uh, um, uh, messages and others were plain language. Some of them were tuned to the aeroplanes that were in the air, others to the ground forces, others back to, uh, to the head office in uh, Pretoria. And they were all going off, all making noise at the same time. And he had his deck chair sitting out the back there in the shade of the tree reading a newspaper. We, we used to get last week's newspaper. Uh, and, and, and all this stuff's going on. And I go and visit him there and we're, we're just talking, just shooting the breeze, got nothing else to do. And suddenly he stops and he grabs a radio and he begins a conversation. You see, with all of those things making a noise, there was one that he knew he needed to hear. And he responds to that one. In all the stuff that we hear, everything that's coming through our minds, everything that's coming through our emotions, everything that's coming through our ears and our eyes and our other senses, there's the voice of the Spirit. Can I hear the voice of the Spirit over all of those things? So going back then to 1 Corinthians 2, um, these things we also speak, not in words, which man's I'm around about verse 13, I think, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit because they are spiritually discerned. Now, a very important point. The natural, what is the natural man? Well, we'll, we'll see probably on Wednesday that the natural man or the carnal or the fleshly or the immature. They're all languages, they're all language describing the same individual. The natural man, the man who operates in the realm of the soul and the body, in other words, with the mind, does not receive the things of the Spirit. He cannot. He can learn them, he can know the Old Testament as the rabbis did, off by heart. He can know the ins and outs and argue their details, but they are not spiritually because they are, he can only operate in the natural. Now, folks, here's an important point that Paul is making. You cannot touch the spiritual things of God through the natural. You cannot reach God through carnal worship, and you cannot understand God or the things of God through your mind because they are spiritually discerned spiritually discerned. And I don't fully understand the meaning of that. I know what it means to discern, but notice that he doesn't say they are spiritually understood. 
because clearly he's trying to get away from the idea of the mind. He doesn't say they are spiritually felt because he's trying to get away from the idea of emotions. They are spiritually discerned. So there's a language of the spirit which goes beyond the natural emotions and the will. And that's where I get that word instinctively. And I know it's a difficult word because animals have instinct. And, uh, but, but it's the only way I can describe something which, is, which, is, which goes beyond words, that goes beyond the mind, that goes beyond my feelings, my emotions, and that's where we have difficulty, you see, because we say, well, you know, if it, then, then surely I'm feeling the Spirit. The problem is that many times when I say I'm feeling the Spirit, I'm really feeling my emotions. And, I, and we get these things confused, and we say, well, I, I, I felt God. People come to church, and, you know, if the music is all done correctly... And you change from, the, and I hope I've got the language right here, we've got the learned musicians here, but you know, we change from a major key to a minor key, and the tempo suddenly comes low down. Oh, I can feel God. I got goosebumps, liver shivers. But you know when they play the national anthem? Same thing. Thank you, brother. It's the same feeling. So is God in the national anthem? No. So what am I feeling? I'm feeling emotions. Human emotions. And I say, I felt God. No, I cannot feel God with my human emotions or with my body through goosebumps or any of those kinds of things but there's a deep sense of God speaking to me. And I cannot verbalize it necessarily. I can't explain it, but I know. Now, we used to have the saying, and, and I always thought it was a stupid saying, but I'm, uh, I'm beginning to understand there's some wisdom in that. I know that I know. I know that I know. In other words, there's something deep down, the Spirit of God witnessing with my spirit that I am indeed born again. And the Spirit of God witnesses with my spirit when things are right, and He witnesses with my spirit when things are wrong. I need to learn to listen to that. And folk, I wonder how far we're going to get. I keep losing track of when we're supposed to finish. Half an hour? All right. Let's, let, me, let me just figure out how we... All right. Let me uh, deal with this quickly, or not quickly. We constantly have the voice of the Spirit, and we have the voice of the flesh. These two things are contrary by definition. The flesh does not want to do the things of the Spirit. And so my body and my mind and my emotions are 
steering me in a direction. But God in His Spirit, through the Spirit, is calling me in a different direction. Who am I listening to? First of all, I need to hear, as we've just said. But in hearing, I need to obey. Because we have, and it's, it's here in the will that we have the problem. It's in the, it's in the realm of the soul that I need to make a decision. Am I going to follow the mind, the body, or the spirit? And folk, every decision that we make all day long, every time my will comes into, into operation, there's the voice of the spirit and there's the voice of the flesh. From the moment you open your eyes, both of those are there. If you're me, and I open my eyes in the morning, from if you listened last night, you'll know what I do. I worry. I stress. All the things I have to do today. All the folk in the church who are not where they ought to be spiritually. All the other issues. Is that the Spirit of God? No, it's the flesh. What's the Spirit of God say? Cast your cares upon Him because He cares for you. And so there's these two voices. The one says worry and the other one says pray. And I say, well, it's no big deal. I'll just worry a little bit. Because I find some kind of comfort in worrying. Now, now folk, I'm just using that as an illustration, but there are other worse thoughts that come into our heads also. And so, who, who, am, I, who am I going to listen? I say, well, it's no, no big deal. But in fact, those little decisions lead to bigger disasters. At one time, I was ministering amongst farmers, and again, Brother John will understand what I'm talking about. In South Africa, farmers have a hard time working with their labor. Uh, there's also a, there's a constant battle of the wills, and uh, farmers are known to have very short fuses. They get angry very quickly. And one time, one, one evening, one of these farmers, he was a cane farmer, and he, uh, he really was sincere in wanting to follow the Lord. And he says, but you know, I, I just can't deal with, my, with my, my anger. I can't keep my temper under control. He knew it was wrong. God, by his spirit, had convicted him. And when I was, while I was speaking to him, I understood this process, and, which I'm sharing with you now. From the moment you get up in the morning and you get out of bed on the wrong side. Now, no, obviously it happens to a few here. You know what that feels like. You just feel otherwise. And you say, well, there's no beer. It's just, it's my biorhythms. It's no big deal. It's the flesh. And the Spirit is saying, get your heart right. 
Pray. Get in touch with God. Change your attitude through your relationship with the Lord Jesus. I said, yeah, no. And I get to the breakfast table. And Sister Ella didn't make the egg exactly the way I want it. So what happens? The temperature rises just a little bit. Now, what, what, was the Spirit speaking to me at that time? He was. He was saying, be thankful. You have food to eat. And I said, no, I'm not thankful. I want an egg that's done one minute and 46 seconds. Not one that's done one minute and 55 seconds. Can you see that it's a spiritual problem? And so I go through my day. All the time, the Spirit is bringing correction to me. But I'm not listening to the Spirit, I'm listening to the flesh. And all the time, the pressure is building, the pressure is building, the pressure is building. And then I get to the traffic light, and the idiot in front of me is on his cell phone, and the light turns green. Pa, 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 pa. What happened to my Christianity? It's out the window. But it was out the window when I got up in the morning and God began to speak to me about getting my heart right. And I said, no, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. The Spirit says, don't look there. You don't look there. The Spirit says, don't go there. You don't go there. And we say, oh, no, I can deal with it. I can go there. And then you wonder why you fall into temptation. And you say, well, you know, I'm just weak. No, God has provided a way of escape and He provided the way of escape before the temptation, not in the temptation, but even before the temptation, He already provided a way of escape, but I wasn't listening. Now, folks, everything I've told you now, we'll, we'll see that verse because I'm going to take some questions now. But all of that, we have this very spiritual term for that. And it appears in Romans and in Galatians. And it's called walking in the Spirit and walking in the flesh. It's as simple as that. Walking in the Spirit doesn't mean that you're floating in some kind of other space. Walking in the Spirit simply means, and if you look at the Amplified, and I don't always like the Amplified, but it's very good in this respect. In, in Romans it says, those who walk after the dictates of the Spirit and those who walk after the dictates of the flesh. So these two things are telling me to go in different directions. If I'm listening to the flesh more than I'm listening to the Spirit, I'm fleshly, carnal. If I'm listening to the Spirit more than the flesh, because none of us get it 100%, except Pastor Werner. The, the rest of it, the rest of us get, I don't know, somewhere in between zero and a hundred. Or here, zero and sixty. But is, am I hearing this voice? Am I obeying the Spirit? That is walking in the Spirit. It's nothing super spiritual. It's nothing that you cannot grab hold of. 
It's nothing that none of us can understand. It's a practical day-to-day living. Each one of us has within us a GPS. Is that what you call it here? A GPS. And the GPS says, turn left here. And he said, no, I'm not going to turn left here. I know where I'm going. You know what I'm talking about. And what will the GPS do? It will bring me back where I need to be. And you ignore the Holy Spirit. You can ignore him for one day and two days and five years and six years and ten years. He's going to keep. My old GPS used to say recalculating. The Holy Spirit is going to keep recalculating and bring you right back to the same place. Remember the people of Israel? Forty years they went around and around and around going past the same place where they didn't want to go until eventually they went where they were supposed to go. Folk, let's hear his voice. Let's obey his voice because he is speaking. He is speaking in an inaudible way through that still, small voice. Amen. Questions? My question is, because the Bible, Isaiah 30, verse 30, says, it will cause all men to hear his majestic voice. He said that in the Bible. And then verse 21, he says, as you turn to the right, to the left, you will hear his voice saying, this is the way, Hmm. go in it. Hmm. Hmm. So I have applied it to my own life. Because when we went to UK, and I learned I was in a call, and everything was going wrong, until one day my brother got a nursing home. I was working with him with my sister. He said something, and the penny dropped. And then I thought, why? And as the Lord says, I'm talking, I'm talking to you. You would never listen. Mm. You're so hard in your heart. Mm. And then at night when I was night duty, I opened the Bible with my sister. And then I realized, yes, my brother was right. I was brainwashed. I was in an occult. And I was doing everything wrongly. My brother picked that up. He was not a Christian. He said to me, you are brainwashed. You better get out of that church. Mm-hmm. I did. And I told them, your Jesus is not my Jesus in the Bible. Your God is not the same God in the Bible. But I got set free through that Isaiah verse 30, verse 30. Amen. And don't you Amen. Praise God. Use that verse. Yeah. Mm. Th- thanks for that testimony, sister. Yeah, good, good illustration. Amen. It's in the realm of emotions, and I agree with you totally, but we can sense and you said it, but not in a direct sense, but we can sense the presence of God yeah. being spiritually discerned. Yes. Yeah, but, but we have to be very careful that, um, that it is indeed the presence of God at, and, and that it is sensed with the Spirit because the, the problem is that, and we, we are, I'm, I'm going to touch on worship on Wednesday night, um, the, the problem is that um, worship leaders today are very well schooled at creating a, a sense of God's presence, which is not God's presence, but is simply an emotional you know, manipulation through 
the music and the lights, and these days there's even smoke and all sorts of stuff that they use. And, and all of that is designed to create a feeling that God is there. And, and of course, they're different, you know, they're horses for courses. So some of us, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not caught by that kind of thing. Uh, but at the same time, because I'm, I, I, I love classical music very much, um, and so if I go into a cathedral and they play the organ, uh, those low notes just resonate with me. And they, they touch me in a way that is indescribable. But it is not God. It is simply a human uh, response. Um, and so different, different people respond to different things. But it's absolutely vital that we do understand and, and sense the presence of God uh, when, when he is, particularly when he's present. But of course, then at the same time, we have to walk by faith and where two or three have gathered, he's there. And so even if we don't feel his presence, we, we believe he still is present um, there. Look, I agree completely. And I did touch on music on, when I ministered on Sunday uh, in relation to some of the areas that you're talking about. But um, yeah, no, I agree 100% at that clarification. <coughs> With the spiritual man and the natural man, um, can we see, for example, from our action on a daily basis, that how we, we behave sometimes, that will prove whether we're spiritual or carnal. For example, like one example that I have, it was a lady once who called a brother, you're not spiritual. And he said to her, why I am not spiritual? And because you're not sensitive to the spirit, she turned back and she said, then that person came to me and he said, such and such. And I go, I don't think I can agree with that, as such as she claims against you. But the example that I have is, Let's say, let's use the example of driving on the road and someone cuts in front of you. Okay? A man who is spiritual, he will long suffer that and move on. And he will have basically the character of Christ. But a man who is not spiritual, perhaps he will swear or lift up fingers, who knows what else he will do. So it's, it speaks sort of, can we conclude that it also affects the fruits of the Spirit in, in practicing them? Yes. Yeah, we, we've got to be very careful about saying, I feel that you're not spiritual, or I discern that you're not spiritual. Uh, and I, I hear, I've heard that language. Um, you know, what gives you the right to discern whether somebody is, but Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. And so Paul says, where there is envy, and this is just one of many examples, but where there is envy, division, and strife among you, are you not carnal and walk as men or as natural men? And so Paul is clearly saying that evidence in this particular case of carnality is envy, division, and strife. Um, and then if you, uh, if you go to Galatians, and I think we, we'll, we'll go to Galatians on, on uh, Wednesday, uh, you'll find that he lists the deeds of the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit rather, and the deeds of the flesh. And uh, remember, we touched on those briefly last night. The deeds of the flesh are not just physical things. They are primarily spiritual things, and this, or, 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 or not, not but intangible things, things of emotions and the mind, things like envy, uh, uh, hatred, uh, wrath, uh, um, greed. 
the, these are things that are not done in the body, they are done in the mind, but they are clearly evidence of carnality. And of course they find their expression, even though it's in the mind, they always find their expression in an outward, uh, outward expression. So, so, so let's say uh, covetousness. Uh, how do we know that somebody is covetous? Well, you know, I feel you're covetous. No, I can't feel that you're covetous. But if I see you're never satisfied with whatever you have, you've always got to have the latest greatest, um, you know, that's clearly evidence of covetousness. And if there's covetousness, it's evidence of carnality. Are they saved or not? No, they are saved. They, they're saved. You see, there, there are... Uh, clearly, Paul do, draws a distinction between those who are unsaved and then those who are saved who are either spiritual or carnal. We are saved not because we are spiritual. We are saved because of the work of the cross. And so, I can still be a carnal Christian. There's no excuse to be a carnal Christian. But I can still be a carnal Christian and still be saved. Yes, and we, mu and we must grow. And, and obviously, another aspect of this issue of, car of car carnality is the issue of immaturity. Um, and so you expect of a child to be, uh, to be carnal, just uh, mixing the metaphors. But when he becomes more mature, you expect him to act like someone who is more mature. And so a new Christian, we don't expect him to have his temper under control and to, you know, and have his, his lust under control and all of those kinds of things. But we expect him to grow in, the, in that process of sanctification or of, of holiness. Yeah, just on that. Uh, uh, Paul does mention in um, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, he says... Uh, are you not carnal owing to these uh, divisions? Uh, he doesn't say, oh, you're, you're carnal Christians or whatever. And uh, in Romans uh, 8, does it actually uh, uh, speak of uh, people who are in the flesh and in the spirit? Does that mean, does that contrast saved from unsaved? No, no. Or does that... Uh, contrast mature Christians to, Im uh, yeah. to immature. Yeah, because, you know, Corinthians, he, he's addressing believers. He's not addressing unbelievers. So he's addressing believers, but clearly they are carnal, and he says, I need to feed you with milk, and I can't give you solid food. Um, and in, in Romans 8, particularly, he's, he's dealing with Christians, because he says, if you don't have the Spirit of God, you're none, none of his. So he's clearly, you know, he gives evidence in the chapter that he is addressing people who have the Spirit of God, and yet they are f walking after the flesh and not walking after the Spirit. Pastor Gary? In Corinthians, Paul's not ref uh, you referred to the carnal, not saying carnal Christians, but if you look at whom he's speaking to, he's speaking to Christians. Yeah. Uh, I, I do have to make the point for us that it's relevant because I know there are a lot of people that listen to Paul Washer, but uh, he will tell you that there's no such thing as a carnal Christian, but there is. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And um, I'm in disagreement with, with Paul Washer in, in, that, in, the man in that manner because Corinthians is addressing the carnal Christian. Mm. Is acting acting uh, in that manner. So um, I think that's. A, uh, I know there's a number of people that listen to Paul, so uh, that's fine. But I just want to make that emphasis. Yeah, yeah. Good, good point, Gary. I, I, I forgot to make that. 
that connection. Yeah. Yeah. We, I, I, I don't. I don't understand where. Um, and it's not only Paul, but others who, who have that view that that these people are not saved. Um, I don't know how they get to that conclusion because it's, to me it's pretty obvious that these are saved people, but they're walking in the flesh. With maturity, and speaking on this topic, he says to me, as many were unsaved in, in the Corden church, he told me that in, the, in, in another church that it is same also in here. And then I challenged him back, and I said, so it is possible you are unsaved, and I'm speaking with an unbeliever. Yeah. So that's the problem that you're running when you take these views. You see, the, uh, let me just bring the balance to that, because in... Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because there is a flip side to this uh, verse uh, 9 uh, 1 Corinthians 6 9 do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor homosexuals nor sodomites nor thieves nor covetous notice the word covetous drunkards nor revilers nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he's not saying that they will not be saved because they are Christians and they're doing these things. They are doing these things because they are not saved. So, you, you have carnal Christians who are not living up to the standard of, of holiness. But then there are other Christians who are, or, or people who appear to be Christians. Uh, I made reference to... Um, to, uh, to Peter, 2 Timothy 3, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And when he says they deny its power, what, they're talking about, what he's talking about is not the power of the Holy Spirit, but the transforming power of the gospel. Romans, 8, uh, Romans 1, uh, I um, am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. The power of God is revealed in its transforming ability to change a sinner into a saint. It doesn't mean the saint doesn't still sin. Because John says, if we say that we are without sin, then we, we lie and we make God a liar. So we, can't, we still sin. But those who have a lifestyle of adultery, or of drunkenness, or of covetousness, not only in 1 Corinthians 6, but uh, at least four times in Paul, and then in the book of Revelation, when it comes to the New Jerusalem, he says that liars and drunkards and those will not enter in. And, and that is evidence of an unregenerate nature. So these are not carnal Christians who are banned, but these are people who were never saved. And so we, we must differentiate, there is a difference then between an unsaved person who is appearing to be religious but clearly his fruit are of such a nature that it defines him as being unsaved because he continues in a lifestyle of whatever kind of sin. And the carnal believer who uh, is saved, he is not continuing in that lifestyle, but he falls more than he, than he stands. Um, but but he, he is, he is definitely, there's real repentance and, he, you know, and, and it's difficult to judge the difference. 
because and the, the other side is, I, 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 you know, um, I'm deeply concerned that um, many uh, evangelical and Pentecostal churches have an increasing percentage of people in the church who are not born again. But they've been assimilated. And you understand the term assimilated. They've learned the language and the traditions and the culture and they know when to stand and when to sit and when to say, praise the Lord, brother, and God bless you, brother. But they've actually never been born again. And, and that's, a, uh, that's a deep concern. And, and we, how do we know that they are not born again? Sometimes we don't even know because the wheat and the tares will grow together. But sometimes we know because there is, there is there's perpetual unrepented sin in their lives, which is one of the evidences of someone who is, who is not regenerate, who's not saved. Now, I, I hope that hasn't thrown another spanner in the works, but... All right. Brother. In, in our um, text verse... Um, it says the very God of peace sanctify you wholly um, and I pray God your whole spirit, soul and the body. Now, it's, um, um, he wants everything, mm. the, the complete, every part of your body, of the, the entire vessel, God wants every part of it and he wants it set apart, that is sanctified, he wants it set apart solely for his purpose only. Yeah. And that, that means that, that there's a cancelling of your will. There's a real, thy will be done in earth, and I, my will must suffer. Yeah. And um, it has to be um, put away. That, that's the end of it, isn't it? Yes. Otherwise, how can we look up when the Lord returns, yeah, yeah. You, you'd be shamefaced, wouldn't you? Yes, yeah, very good point. So, so the point of the passage is that it's no good just having an outward form of sanctification. But it's also no good having a spiritual experience. What needs to happen is what happens in the spirit needs to permeate my whole being, needs to change my mind needs to change my will, needs to change my feelings, my emotions, and needs to change the way that I use my body. And that's the point that Paul is making. So he's saying, I want your sanctification to be more than skin deep. I want you to be sanctified entirely from the inside out. And remember, it must happen from the inside out. It cannot happen from the outside in. In, in psychology, we have a thing called behavior modeling. The idea of behavior modeling is that if you, uh, if you force someone to do something in a particular way for long enough, it will not only change his behavior, but it will change his attitude, and he'll begin to do those things naturally. Now, that's a wrong idea. So, I cannot, I cannot change who I am through learning new habits. And that's the power of the gospel. Because nothing in this world, no self-help scheme, no uh, um, uh, self-improvement program can change my personality. But the gospel can. And so Paul is saying, I want this reality to permeate your whole being and to change every aspect of, of, of who you are. 
Some Christians say, well, you know, I'm saved and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, you know I'm, 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 I love the Lord and I'm, you know, I'm born again and I've got His Spirit in me. But their bodies deny that because they use their bodies in an ungodly way. Um, no, Paul says the reality of the Spirit needs to go right through and I need to be sanctified through and through. That's, the, that's his prayer and his point. That's right. He, he, he's, he's not going to do it unilaterally. I mean, there's, there's a teaching, uh, I don't know that it's that popular anymore, but it used to be popular, that, you know, just let go and let God. Uh, you know, I don't have to do anything, God will do everything. No, God will do everything, but he needs my response. He needs my cooperation. And the way that he does things is through the Spirit, through his voice, and he's teaching me and he's directing me, but I need to obey. And as I respond to him, he reveals more. And as I respond to that, he reveals more. And, and that is the process. It's a cooperative process between, between God and us. It's not something we can do on our own. Without God, we can do nothing. But at the same time, it's not something God can do without our cooperation. It needs to be the, uh, my response to God's, uh, God's initiation.